You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I know a lot of people want to use water efficient fixtures, but they're afraid they won't work as well. Let me tell you about High Sierra Showerheads, which was named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. I just installed one at my house and I was genuinely surprised at the power and coverage of the water. High Sierra Showerheads earn the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency. They use at least 40% less water than the conventional low-flow showerheads. High Sierra showerheads are constructed out of metal, so there's no plastic involved, they're very durable, and they're naturally antibacterial. One of my favorite things, these showerheads are made in the USA by a small business located in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Get 20% off with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Order today and start saving water and money with High Sierra. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Very excited to be joined by Nancy Stoner. She is the president of the Potomac Riverkeeper Network. Nancy, how's it going? Uh, great. Good, good. I'm glad to be joined by you to talk about this and uh, Glad to talk to you, especially you were my boss, my supervisor at EPA's Office of Water when you ran that shop and I was a communications director, so uh, known you for a while. Excited to talk to you in this new role. Um, for people that aren't familiar with the Potomac River and its watershed, could you describe this, this river and this place? Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful river. Uh, so obviously the Potomac is a historic river as well, but it, uh, from a watershed perspective, it starts way up in the mountains of West Virginia and in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Uh, those, the Shenandoah and the Potomac meet at Harper's Ferry, and then it flows through urban areas, including Washington, D.C., all the way down to the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, it's got white water, it has trout fishing, it has smallmouth bass fishing. It, it is just a tremendous resource for this part of the country. Yeah, and I think we both uh, grew up in the, in the Potomac watershed. I grew up in Frederick, Maryland, and then you were, is it Waynesboro, Virginia? Kind of Waynesboro, I, yeah. I grew up in the headwaters of the Shenandoah along uh, the South River, which flows into the Shenandoah. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's uh, so. I grew up in the mountains uh, and have lived in DC uh, or the DC area anyway my whole adult life. So I have enjoyed this as an adult and raising my kids here. And then I also used to play in the river all the time as a kid. Yeah, so it all it all comes around for you, kind of full circle here as the as the president of your organization. Uh, before we dive a little bit deeper into the health of the river and the challenges and all that, could you give an overview also of of the Potomac Riverkeeper Network? Yeah, so it's a network of three river keepers. There's one for the Upper Potomac, the Potomac, and the Shenandoah. And uh, this organization, like all Riverkeeper organizations, focuses on stopping pollution. We identify discrete sources of pollution that we can stop and figure out how to stop them. So it in, involves compliance monitoring. It involves water quality monitoring. It involves doing what we call uh, compliance sweeps, which are review of paper records, and figuring out what are the sources of pollution that we can stop 
by uh, working with the entities creating the pollution, by uh, enforcing a federal, state, or local law, or by passing one if there isn't one already in place. And these these three river keepers, uh, they're out there actually on the water a lot of the time and, and in the watershed and kind of seeing what's going on and testing the water. And, and then uh, what's that relationship between them and you? What's kind of your role in supporting them and all that? Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I do is support them. So they are the heart and soul of the organization. They're the voice for the river. They're the eyes and ears for the river, as you just said. Uh, they're out a lot in the watershed. They are required to have access to a boat. They're required to patrol. They respond to incident reports and follow up on stuff. What they really enjoy is figuring out where there's a big pollution mess that they can then stop. So uh, the thing that's unique about river keepers is compared to other nonprofits is that they really know how to do the investigation on the ground. There are other groups that know how to bring citizen suits and enforce the law, uh, but uh, it's very unusual in the nonprofit world to have people who know how to take water quality samples, how to gather evidence, how to ensure it's preserved. They that uh, we use drones to take photos, uh, overflights with planes. We know how to document the case and do the kind of investigation that criminal investigators do in the government. Hmm. And what's the what's the relationship between you know the Potomac Riverkeeper Network and the larger Riverkeeper organization? It's kind of I think a unique uh, situation also in the way that all the individual Riverkeepers are connected but independent, right? It, it it seems kind of like a franchise. Now, that's not a word that they use in the Riverkeeper world, but if you think of it uh, as a franchise, like a McDonald's franchise, so all Riverkeepers have certain things in common. And, uh, and so if you go anywhere in the country, or in fact, a lot of places in the world, because there are Riverkeepers all over the world, you can find somebody and they will have these same characteristics. They're the advocate for the river. They're the eyes and ears and so forth. So we're really part of a big, bigger network of waterkeepers. There's about 350 of them all around the world. Okay. All right. So the, back to the Potomac itself. How's the health of the river, you know, and, and how's it now compared to maybe how it's been historically? Yeah. So like many rivers in the United States, it's had an up and down history over time. So, of course, if you go back to uh, when the Native Americans were here uh, uh, and John Smith first came here, he said, oh, my God, this river, it's teeming with fish. It's, you know, it's he went on and on about what a fabulous resource it was. So it was extremely healthy back then. Uh, and then all the people moved in. And initially, of course, we moved in uh, with all the pollution that we generated and no sewage treatment and no stormwater management and no controls on agricultural pollution. And the low point was like the 70s and the early 80s. That's when the water was so polluted that nobody went in it. People who grew up said, I wouldn't go anywhere near that river. 
And then investments began to be made and leadership was shown by uh, people like uh, President Johnson, who uh, led an effort to clean up the Potomac River, and uh, Justice Douglas, who led an effort to, uh, to uh, protect the lands along it, the CNO Canal and the lands along it. And investments were made in sewage treatment, as in many places across the United States, and that made a huge difference uh, in the Potomac watershed. And now, and then industrial pollution was controlled better. And we're still working on stormwater. We're still working on uh, sewer overflows from uh, uh, combined sewer systems. We're still working on agricultural pollution. So there's more work ahead. But now the Potomac is often safe for use. And people are in it all the time. And waterfront development has sprung up as a result. And so you say safe for use. I know, you know, uh, swim, having water body be swimmable, that's kind of like part of the, the terminology here. Obviously, you have different parts of the river where the health is different and the water quality is different. But so it is actually swimmable in what, in what areas kind of, you know, I'm, I've been tubing up and around in West Virginia, floating down the river there happily and everything. Uh, people might not think it's swimmable as it goes through DC, kind of. Yeah, where, where can you get in the water for the most part, most of the time? Yeah, so there isn't water quality monitoring everywhere. So we don't know the answer everywhere. Uh, but we, but there are a couple things, generalizations you can make. First of all, up in the headwaters, up in the mountains, it tends to be pretty clean. Uh, and so if there isn't a direct source of contamination, which you do sometimes have with cattle, uh, who herds of cattle in the water or uh, poultry manure running into the water. If you don't have something like that, it usually is safe for water recreation up in the mountains. In the urban areas, it's safe unless you've had a big rainfall. Uh, so uh, we actually monitored in the D.C. area last summer. It was the first summer we had uh, water quality monitoring that wasn't directed at a particular pollution problem, but was instead um, just regular routine water quality monitoring. And what we found was that uh, about half the time the water met uh, water quality standards for bacteria. So about half the time it was safe to go in the water. Uh, so it's important to check that information. It's on Swim Guide, which is a tool developed by water keepers and used by water keepers around the world. Uh, but it's also just a generally good idea not to swim after a heavy rainfall. Yeah. I love that you mentioned swim guide. I've had that on my phone for a number of years and use it in a lot of the places I head out. It's uh, super, super handy information. Um, I think one of the things that's unique about the Potomac you mentioned is like the diversity of landscapes that it goes through. You're in the, like some incredible mountains, rural areas, and then you're going through the heart of the nation's capital. So there's different stressors and sources of pollution that come with that. You've mentioned a few, but could you expand on that a little bit? Like now, what are the main challenges for cleaning up the Potomac, making it even a healthier river? Yeah. So up in the Shenandoah, the answer is agriculture. That is the biggest problem. Uh, as uh, viewers may know, it's not very well controlled under the Federal Clean Water Act and the state laws tend to be pretty weak. So one of the things we've been doing is trying to strengthen those state laws and strengthen the funding available to put in best management practices for agriculture. Uh, agricultural pollution can be addressed 
but is not required to be a, a, addressed under federal law and under state law. And so trying to make sure that the money is available and the incentives are available to address that, that's one of our big priorities in the Shenandoah. Um, the Upper Potomac is pretty clean. There are few industrial sources and few and some problems like um, uh, acid mine drainage and so forth that are uh, historical problems that have not yet been completely solved. But it's a beautiful part of the watershed and it's really nice with trout streams and everything up there. So that's that's a pretty that's a pretty good area to go to. Uh, urban areas, the pollution is related to people. So there are two main kinds of pollution. Uh, one of them is is sewage and the other is stormwater. Those are the two biggest sources of pollution. Um, we've also spent a considerable amount of time in the urban area of D.C. dealing with um, uh, toxic coal ash that comes from power plants that either burn coal now or used to burn coal and put the ash in ponds. Uh, State-of-the-art treatment for that has been to actually add water and put the coal ash in a pond uh, next to the river. And uh, that was something that uh, you and I worked on in the Obama administration is to put together regulations that would require treatment and dry handling of that coal ash. Uh, those are being rolled back now in the Trump administration, but we have had some good luck in, uh, in uh, dealing with these under state law. Uh, Maryland has been uh, working with us on strengthening uh, Clean Water Act permits to put those requirements in, uh, uh, the permits, even though they're not required under federal law. And then the state of Virginia passed legislation in 2019 requiring safe handling of toxic coal ash. The reason that you and I worked on it in the Obama administration is was that it was the long, largest single source of industrial toxic pollution going into waterways across the United States. So a huge problem and one that we see in the Potomac watershed. And we've been very pleased to be able to work with both Virginia and Maryland to address it. Yeah, a lot of the heavy metals, right? Uh, things, really nasty, toxic stuff in there. Um, I know right. that- I know that where I live now in North Carolina, uh, you know, there's a lot of these kind of uh, coal ash ponds, and it's a particular problem when we've had hurricanes uh, come through and right. cause breaches and overflows, and then that gets into rivers, and not a not a good thing. A um, lot of things to follow up on here. Let's start on ag because this is an area that, like you said, uh, there's not very much regulation there. Uh, there's been a long, lot of efforts over a long time to try to incentivize farmers to put in best management practices to control pollution. Uh, you mentioned trying to change some laws or try to help that along. I'm just curious, you know, how that's going um, and if there's any examples of working successfully with agriculture to re reduce pollution. It just seems like the same approaches have been taken for a while and I don't know if there's much traction, you know, there. Uh, so the answer is that it is uh, pretty slow. Yeah. Uh, that's the answer. Yeah. So uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, we are making progress, and we got the first law passed in Virginia in twenty in uh, earlier this year, twenty twenty, uh, that would require that cattle herds of cattle be fenced out of the waterway and that they be given an alternative water source. Uh, so, uh, so there's five years for uh, the farmers to take state money that is available as well as federal money that is available to build fences 
and those alternative water sources. So that was a big step forward. Uh, and hopefully that will come to pass and we won't have those herds of cattle. When you go in the Shenandoah right now, uh, there are people, as you talked about tubing out that way, there are people all the time in the water in kayaks and inner tubes and so forth. And you see herds of cattle standing right next to them. Wow. I personally have an experience where I went canoeing with my husband when I was a newlywed and we did an overnight camping trip and it was in the summer and it was hot and I got out and we put the canoes up on the bank, got out, went swimming and realized that there were cattle patties all around us, floating all around us. It was disgusting. (laughs) And the result of that was that it was probably a decade before I went back to the Shenandoah canoeing again. So it really deters the tourism that's one of the main industries in the Shenandoah. And it's totally unnecessary. There are, it's even better for the cattle. They get mastitis in the water. It's better for the cattle to have alternative watering sources. It's just more expensive. So we have to pay to help farmers do this. uh, And we have to get them to understand why it's good for their cattle, their herd, uh, their farm, as well as for the water that they love. And most farmers, of course, love the Shenandoah. Uh, uh, They fish out there. They hunt the ducks. They love the river. uh, But they've grown up with having the cattle in the water. And so changing the culture and the attitudes about it is a slow process. Yeah, sure, definitely. Uh, a couple of the other sources you mentioned, I, I, I was fascinated you mentioned the, the coal ash and those kind of sites. Where Where is that located? Where are those those ponds, I'm, just from a geographic sense? So um, so the one in, in uh, Virginia that is uh, best known is called Possum Point, and it's actually right near Quantico. There's a little creek called Quantico Creek that's right near there. Uh, and the people who live around the um, the coal ash site also had contaminated groundwater from the leaching from those ponds. But they are right next to the Potomac River. If you had a picture in front of you, you'd say, why would you put that pond right there, right next to the river? And it's really so that they could leak <laughs> into the river so that they would drain. Uh, and one of the things that we found that was going on was illegal pumping of the uh, of the ponds into the Potomac. In Maryland, you find them uh, um, uh, in Morgantown, which is down in Charles County, which is downstream from DC, and then Dickerson, which is up in uh, Montgomery County, uh, up in the upper parts of Montgomery County. Um, so, uh, so there has been work to do um, all over the Potomac watershed. There, of course, are coal ash ponds and other watersheds as well. You mentioned them in North Carolina. There are some down in the James River watershed and the Patuxic River watershed. And we have worked with those other riverkeeper groups uh, collaboratively to address this problem. Interesting. I know that there's been some more coal facilities close over recent years just because it's not economically viable, really. Um, Has that happened within the Potomac watershed? Any facilities shut down over the past five years or so? Yeah, so they are increasingly moving away from burning coal, as you said. So this is becoming more of a legacy issue uh, where there are old ponds there that need to be excavated. One of the good things about coal ash is that it actually can be recycled. Uh, It can be put into concrete and it actually makes it stronger. 
so it's it's good from a recycling standpoint, and it doesn't break down in the environment. And so it can be uh, it can be excavated and reused that way, or it can be put in a um, sanitary landfill that has leachate collection and liners and so forth. So that's what that's what the Virginia law requires. I see. Okay. Uh, back to some of the urban sources of pollution, uh, you mentioned stormwater, and this is obviously, you know, after, after rainfall, everything that goes off that, those impervious surfaces, right? The, the parking lots, the rooftops, the roads, uh, we know from being in that, living in that area, just how the DC Metro region has grown over the past couple decades. It's unbelievable. And all the hard surfaces that have come with it, uh, make stormwater tough. Could you talk about that? that challenge and, um, you know, what kinds, what the impact it might have on the Potomac? Yeah. So it's a big challenge. It's very, very difficult. And there are more than, there's more than one kind of stormwater program. You're mostly talking about municipal stormwater, which is, uh, the stormwater that you have in dense urban areas. And as you just said, it's, uh, caused by the water, the rain washing everything off the surface of the land into the waterways when it rains. And that, uh, and that happens, uh, uh, it, it happens very effectively when there is impervious surface, when you have pavement, uh, concrete building surfaces or whatever, it just runs right off. And so there's a lot of work to try to change the way the landscape operates from a hydrologic standpoint. So that instead of having these high volume, high velocity flows that carry everything into the waterway and also scour the streams to have the water spread out, slow down and sink into the landscape. That's relatively easy to do if you do not have a lot of density. It's very difficult with a lot of density uh, and expensive. And I would say, honestly, that uh, people have been working very hard at it. People know how to do it at, at a site scale, and it works great. And it's very difficult to do at a watershed or subwatershed level. You uh, you have to put in a lot of uh, green infrastructure, which is what you call this um, permeable kind of area, you have to put a lot of it in uh, and you have to maintain it. And uh, the governance issues are complicated. Uh, who's responsible for it and who's going to maintain it over time? Is it private individuals? Is it government? And so forth. Um, I don't think we've completely turned the corner on it. I would have said 10 years ago that we knew how to do it. So we just needed to go do it. And now I'm a little less sanguine about it. Honestly, uh, we've been trying to do it. People, smart people know how to design these things of good faith have been trying to do it. And there are very few watersheds that you can point to where it has been successful. Mm. And a big part of that, like you said, is the funding, the, the dollars that are needed to do this at a broad, broad scale and to maintain it then on an ongoing basis. Um, on a related note, I know when we were at EPA, you had the idea, uh, we went over to see the what Department of Energy's solar decathlon or something like that, where university students designed houses that are energy efficient. And um, you had the idea to start a similar challenge for universities around green infrastructure, and it became the Campus Rainworks Challenge. Uh, and I'm glad to see that that program has continued. They just announced some some new winners there. I just I remember riding back from that event in the car with you. We were like, you know, we should do something like this for for water and green infrastructure. So. 
it's cool to see it. I think there's, yeah, I think there's a lot of room for creativity in this, uh, in figuring out how to do this in different kinds of landscapes. Land, landscape architects are great at doing this kind of stuff. And again, it's not really that we don't know how to do it. We actually do know how to do it. It's that it's uh, when you take something like uh, a site on a campus or a uh, pocket park or something we definitely know how to do it at that scale and it's how do you how do you actually get buy-in from all the different entities that need to buy in wh whether it's the department of transportation the department of public works whether it's the people in the neighborhood how do you get people so that they think that this how do you get it to be the new normal yeah. everybody's talking about the new normal these days how do you get it to be the new normal for what a city looks like and what people expect and what people want and what they will contribute to make happen whether it's through uh, ratepayers uh, you mentioned the funding or whether it's through uh, adopt a rain garden or other kinds of programs they have. How do you make it universal? Uh, and that's what we really have to do. We have to do it intensively for it to work. Absolutely. A couple other uh, areas I wanted to ask you about that um, caught my attention, and I, I think you hit on this a little bit, is the, about citizen science. Um, and I'm really curious about what role that can realistically play in helping to monitor and improve waterways like the Potomac? What is what is citizen science? How do you all use it? Uh, what impact do you think it can have? Yeah, so um, we definitely do use citizen science. Some people call it community science. You can think of a citizen of the world or a member of the community as being someone. And the idea is that you don't have to have a PhD uh, to do science, to do good science that helps protect water bodies. And people are really excited about doing this. Uh, we find uh, that if we say we want people to come and we want you to, to collect water quality samples, you know, get your hands dirty, get in there, gather the information needed. The main thing they want to do is make sure somebody's going to use it. And at the Riverkeeper, you don't need to worry about that because we only focus on places that are frequently used public access sites where people want the information about whether it's safe to go in the water. Or we focus on places that are known pollution sources where we want to document the problem, we want to work to clean it up, and then we want to document how the solutions are working. Or the best is where those two things come together, where people are wanting to use the water, uh, but it may not be safe. And so we focus on uh, science you can use. And so the citizens gather that information, we analyze it, we put out the information uh, through the uh, chest. Chesapeake Bay Monitoring Collaborative is where the data goes. And then, as I said earlier, the results go on SwimGuide to make it available to the public easily so they know when it's safe to go in the water. Do those uh, citizens, community members kind of get some basic training or, or a, a certain standard test kit just to make sure that there's a quality uh, assurance here? Absolutely. So this year it's been a little complicated uh, due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, we used to have live training. Now we have virtual training, online training. But there's a procedure manual that they have to study, protocols they have to follow. Uh, we are a tier three certified lab by the state of Virginia. And so we had to have everything approved. Uh, have to do it all so that it's usable not just by us, but also by governmental officials to protect the water bodies. Okay, good. Um, 
Potomac River, I think you mentioned this at the beginning, feeds into the Chesapeake Bay, uh, one of our nation's iconic waterways, a long, long, long running uh, effort to clean up that, that water body, clean up the bay. Um, what's the Potomac's impact on the Chesapeake compared to you know, the other rivers that flow into it, the water it gets from the ocean, et cetera? Uh, well, we're the second worst. The Susquehanna is the worst, and we're the second worst. So we have a pretty big impact on the Chesapeake Bay, um, uh, and uh, and you know we. We would like to be contributing uh, less nutrient pollution. So a lot of this, again, has to do with those agricultural sources that we talked about. Also, the sewage and the stormwater all have nutrient pollution. Um, as you know, that's the biggest issue in the Chesapeake Bay is nutrient pollution. So, uh, so, uh, so we have a lot of work to do. One of the things that we are interested in that your question raises in my mind is we don't want to have how well we do measure just in the Chesapeake Bay. And the, the Chesapeake Bay cleanup plan looks to have the Chesapeake Bay be healthy. Well, if you're living in Waynesboro, Virginia, like I did growing up, you've never been to the Chesapeake Bay. You have no idea what, what it is down there. And what you want is your local water body to be protected. And so that's something we focus a lot on. We've had limited success on it, I would say, because the program is designed to ensure compliance with water quality standards in the Chesapeake Bay. But from the standpoint of the Riverkeeper, we want all the water bodies to be protected. We all want them all to be usable and by everyone throughout the watershed. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I know before I came to downtown DC to work for you, when I was at the Chesapeake Bay program office, and we were developing that historic TMDL, um, that was part of the, the roadshow sales pitch, if you will, was when we would go to Pennsylvania or go out into Maryland or out in Virginia, this is, you know, we need to clean up our local waterways, what's in your community, that's what people care about. They're not really concerned about something hundreds and hundreds of miles away, they're not going to not going to use makes a lot of sense um it's travis yeah while that's true why what you just said was true mm -hmm. that the way the system works doesn't reinforce that in a way that i think is in, uh, appropriate so there's averaging that's used mm. so one of the things that happened uh in the update to the tmdl this year uh, or the update to the implementation plan for it was that the james river had been doing better than it was supposed to be. And the Shenandoah was doing worse. So the state of Virginia averaged the two. So we didn't like that. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so we thought in the Shenandoah, you should actually be able to get clean water. Uh, it's nice that things are going well in the James. And, you know, we appreciate the great work that our, the James Riverkeeper does in the James River Association. But we need help in the Shenandoah. We want that to be clean. We don't want averaging to be the way to clean up the bay. No, makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Uh, last question I had for you uh, was about shellfish. Um, I'm always, you know, feel like if we've got more shellfish out there in different waterways, that they would be a great help in, in cleaning them up, right? Um, the Chesapeake Bay, like the oyster population historically back in the, those colonial days, I think they, they filtered the, the water of the Chesapeake every 24 hours or something like that. Uh, I should check my facts. But um, obviously, they're down to less than 1% of that historic high. They can't do the same, the same filtering. Uh, I saw you all have a, a project involving mussels, the 50 million mussel project. Uh, what's that about? 
Yeah, so it's not really 50 million muscles yet, but that's where we're going. <laughs> so, uh, so we just started a pilot program. This is with freshwater mussels, native freshwater mussels, uh, and uh, and they like the oysters are filter feeders. So they are they do a great job of taking out the con contaminants, like we were just talking about with stormwater, that are so difficult for us to do through changes in land management. Uh, so uh, what happens is all the contaminants flow into the waterway. Well, the mussels love that stuff. That's what they eat. And so they take it up and these are not the mussels you eat. So they continue to grow and get bigger and continue to contain those contaminants. And so we just started a project last year at National Harbor and a pilot project, we just did what we call a, a muscle reveal, which is where you pull out the muscles and make sure they're all still alive and having babies. It looks like it's a good site to continue to grow this effort. And our goal, as you said, was 50 million muscles by 2030. Now, we shouldn't have to put all of them in. If you get them in and they like it there, they'll reproduce and they'll generate more clean water for all of us. Oh, fantastic. I know. Uh, so I've gone a lot of times to the St. Lawrence River, which is in upstate New York on the Canadian border. Uh, when I was there as a kid, the water was much more murky than they've had the zebra mussels uh, kind of in, which are invasive and the water is, yeah. the water but the water is so clear um, I know they're invasive and problematic but they've they've cleaned up the water um, well good Nancy it was so awesome to reconnect with you and chat about all these aspects of the Potomac River um, and I definitely uh, as I visit back up that way hope to hope to get out on the water uh, as soon as I can but thank you so much we'd love that. to see yeah. yeah, we'd love to see you again up here, Travis. All right, sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code Waterloop for 20% off at highsierrashowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop.